Again, Mark 10, 13 through 16. And they were bringing children to him so that he might touch them. And the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, Let the children come to me. Do not hinder them. For to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms, and he blessed them, laying his hands on them. It is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning, everybody. It's great to be with you, and now you to. Take some time to ponder God's word. Let's pray. Ask him for help. Father, we thank you that you are a communicating God. Lord, we confess that often we do not want to hear what you have to say. Um, We feel like your words get in our way sometimes. So we pray, Lord, that you would give us honesty, humility, and openness, Lord, to hear your word, that um, we be willing to be exposed by what you say, and that we would receive your invitation to come to you, to trust you. So Lord, please help me now as I try to teach this passage faithfully, help me do that, and Lord, help each one of us to hear it as you would. And we thank you for your own promise that when your word goes out, you do exactly what you want with it. So please do that work in us. Even now, in Jesus' name, amen. So we are continuing our study right through the Gospel of Mark. If you're new with us, we're just, we're marching right through this book. I was just thinking about how profound of an experience that is for me, preaching through a book. And, and maybe, maybe you've had that same experience. When we, when we gather together, I'm not just, I'm not just going to my hobby horse, what I feel like talking about, what I want to talk about. We're, we're trying to let this book set the agenda on, on what we're considering, on, on how to look at all of life. Sometimes it feels like a headlock, doesn't it? It's our, our attention is over here, and we come to the scriptures, and it, and it yanks us over there. It's kind of like that for us this morning. We're, we're in this small but powerful passage regarding Jesus' response to small children, so you should be thinking like infants to toddlers, small children who are brought to him. And at, and at first glance, you might at first glance you might think, "Who cares?" Or you might think, "What does this have to do with me?" Uh, perhaps you don't have children. Maybe you do have children. They're already grown. This feels irrelevant. Or maybe you're feeling exhausted by raising small children. And you would really like to think about something else this morning. Or maybe you're an infant or a toddler, and this is about you, but unfortunately, you're in the nursery right now. And you won't even hear it, and you couldn't understand it anyway. But maybe also you notice, as the text was read, Jesus sounds rather serious. In fact, he gets seriously angry in this passage. And he says serious things. So, verse 15, Jesus said, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall 
not enter it. If we're taking Jesus seriously, do you realize what a, how punchy that is? How confronting that is? How serious that is? Jesus ties this moment to salvation itself. And here, here's where I owe you some honesty. I owe you some honesty. To not enter the kingdom is, the, is your worst nightmare coming true. To not enter the kingdom, it means you don't have any fellowship or friendship with the living God who made you. To not enter the kingdom means you're still at enmity with the holy God. It means that you wear responsibility for your rebellion and sin against God. It means you're not forgiven. It means you will pay the debt for the evil you have done and the good you have not done. It means the justice of God's wrath in hell forever. That's what Jesus says. That's what he means. We're taking him seriously. That's what we need to ponder. So if that's true, right, you'll agree with me. This is, this is nothing but serious. And then we realize, well, maybe this passage does have something to do with me. Maybe it has something to do with each one of us. I got four points for us today. We need to see the dangerous attitude. We need to encounter shocking grace. We need to see the essential response, what it means to come to Jesus. And then we're going to look at two applications. So number one, dangerous attitude, shocking grace, essential response, two applications. First of all, the dangerous attitude. Mark 10, 13, they were bringing children to Jesus that he might touch them. And the disciples rebuked them. So it's not hard to imagine this. People are bringing their small children to Jesus that he might interact with them and bless them. It's not uncommon in the Bible for uh, a respected leader to bless others. It's a meaningful thing. It's a valuable thing. Many times the love of God actually comes through a blessing like this. And then, of course, you think of Jesus, right? There's no one so strong, no one so kind, no one so good as Jesus. And I, I can relate, certainly, with wanting Jesus to bless my children. Can't you relate to that? So pre people are bringing their babies to Jesus. And then of all people, Jesus' disciples are rebuking them. So just in the context of Mark, like that's the same word for when you like rebuke a demon. It's strong. It's a harsh rejection. You can imagine you're bringing your, your kiddo, right, to, to meet Jesus, and his own disciples are like, get out of here. We don't want you here right now. Go away. Why would the disciples do this? We really have to think about that. Why would they do this? Well, if you give them a little empathy, you can... You know, infants, toddlers, sometimes they don't seem all that important in the grand scheme of things. You can imagine the disciples thinking, hey, we're trying to bring the kingdom of God here. Or we have real enemies like the Roman Empire or religious leaders. We have important work to do. After all, Jesus is on the way to the capital city of Jerusalem 
as God's promised king, he's going to have multitudes following him into the city. He doesn't have time for kissing babies right now, right? After all, one thing about babies is they don't do anything or like, you know, contribute anything to the work. They don't change their own diapers, right? They don't help the cause. They don't have a contribution. I think that's what they're thinking. Jesus is too important for this. This isn't that important. Get out of here. But look at Jesus' response. When Jesus saw it, he's indignant. That means he's not having it. That means he's ticked off. That means he's angry. He's not playing. Why is he angry? Why is he angry? His disciples are doing two things. They're misunderstanding him and his kingdom, and they're misrepresenting him and his kingdom. Misunderstanding, misrepresenting. You can see why this is important. Like, say, say I, for one, get Jesus really wrong. And I say, hey, you got to be this or that or the other thing for you to come to Jesus. And then I communicate that to you. And what if you go away with a wrong understanding of who Jesus is and what it means to come to him? That's a pretty serious issue, isn't it? That's what they're doing here. So we, we got to dive into this. Number one, how are they misrepresenting Jesus and his kingdom? Well, first, they're misrepresenting Jesus as king. If you want to see the power of like a normal human king, what are you looking at? It's usually their followers, right? Their armies. What country's behind them? Look at Proverbs 30, 29 to 31. Proverbs is a book giving wisdom, making observation about humanity. Three things are stately in their tread. Four are stately in their stride. The lion, which is mightiest among beasts, doesn't turn back before any. The strutting rooster, the he-goat, and the king whose army is with him. I think that's funny to compare a king and his army to a rooster. You've ever seen a rooster? I don't know. You can see the strut, right? Check me out. Check out my army. If you take away the army, what happens to the strut? He's just he's ordinary like the rest of us. What happens the way what happens if you take away Jesus' followers? You guys, Jesus is so majestic, he has no need for any army. He's he's so majestic, he has all the strength. In himself. In fact, that's, that is what's going to happen. All his followers are so pathetic, they're all going to run from him, and it doesn't do anything to change the power and the majesty and the glory of Jesus. Look at this psalm, and it, it, Jesus does fulfill this. Look at this psalm, Psalm 8.1. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You've set your glory above the heavens. So that's serious glory, right? This is the glory of the Creator. And look at this, verse 2, out of the mouth of who? Babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes. So here's the idea. Jesus is so strong, he defeats his enemies with a choir of babies. That's trash talk. That's insane power and majesty. 
One, a human king, check out, check out me and all my armies. Eh. Jesus says, check out me and my army of babies. I, I still win. I'm still victorious. So the disciples are misrepresenting the king. Do you see what's happening? By saying, hey, Jesus is too busy for the weak. They're actually saying Jesus is weak. Jesus is so strong, he's never too busy for the weak. They're they're misrepresenting the king. They're also misrepresenting the kingdom. You think of a king with his armies. When it comes to Jesus and how he saves, you realize there actually is no army of the strong. See, the disciples assumed, right? Think about their mindset. Jesus, we don't have any time, or everybody, we don't have time, any time for your, your babies. Because they don't bring any contribution. They don't have anything to offer. And, and then the flip side, flip side of that thought, but I do. Do you see? They don't have anything to offer, but I do. You know, not infants, but Jesus needs us, right? Great spiritual leaders. Because we're capable and we get things done. Because we have a contribution to make. Do you see what they're doing? They're believing and communicating that the kingdom is those the kingdom is for those who bring wisdom, strength, and contribution. It's for those who have something to offer. And the reason Jesus is setting them, them so straight is because in light of him, there is no one who has something to offer. There's nobody like that. If Jesus has received you into the kingdom, it's not because you have something to offer him. Jesus is indignant because his disciples are getting him wrong and his kingdom wrong and then misrepresenting him to others. You can see why he's so angry. They are rejecting those he graciously welcomed. And do you realize how warped the, the kingdom of God would look if Jesus did not make this correction? All of a sudden, the people who are really Christians and the people who are important in the church be the super smart people, super successful people, the rich people, the healthy people, the young but adult people, and everybody else. Yeah, we have any space for you. Corrupts the whole thing. Look at what Paul says to the church in Corinth. It's like a backhanded compliment, if there ever was one. Paul's writing a church, and it's a prideful church. Paul says to them, consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to earthly standards. What's that? That's a nice way to say what? I won't say it. Not many of you were powerful. Not many of you were of noble birth. That's a nice way to say what? But look at verse 27. But God chose. But God chose. What does God choose? God chose what is foolish in the world. You have anything to offer? God likes to choose those people because he shames the wise. The wise think, hey, of course 
course God needs me. Look how wise I am. God says, no, you're not even, you're not even mine. I'm choosing the fool to show you I'm the wise one. That's what God's doing. Or God chose what is weak in the world. He likes to choose the weak in order to shame those who think they're strong. Verse 28, God chose, what does he choose? What is low and despised in the world. Even the things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. I mean, he creates his people. Verse 29, what's the point? So that no human being might do what? Boast in the presence of God. If your attitude's like, well, of course God likes me, needs me, loves me. Look how great I am. Look how good I am. Look how moral I am. Look how ethical, wise, religious I am. You are totally missing it. And it's a dangerous attitude, actually. So here's a way to sum up the dangerous attitude, I think. Jesus receives people, Jesus only receives people who have something to offer him, like me. Jesus receives people who have something to offer him, like me. And we've seen already that severely underestimates Jesus and his majesty, and it severely overestimates us and our goodness. It's really a takeover on Jesus' kingdom, and he will not have it. That's a dangerous attitude. Now we see shocking grace. Shocking grace. The language is strong. It's going to challenge us. Verse 14, when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. So the disciples have basically said, these people can't come because they don't have anything to offer. Jesus says, the kingdom is already theirs precisely because they have nothing to offer. Jesus is basically saying, how dare you get in their way because I've already given my kingdom to them. You're telling me who can be in my kingdom or not based on some human distinction? Get out the way. It's my kingdom. I've given this to them. And here we hear Jesus saying the kingdom belongs to babies. The kingdom belongs to infants. It really is shocking. So let's ask, well, why would he say that? And I know some of you are thinking, well, because babies are so cute and innocent. All right, we'll buy the little dolls of like naked baby angels, you know, playing harps. That is, that is, it's not biblical, okay? That's not it. And by the way, you'd be in trouble because Jesus is going to say in verse 15, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall never enter it. So if you want to say, well, it's because babies are cute and innocent, you have problems. No offense. Are you cute and innocent enough? Are you innocent enough to deserve the kingdom? I am not. I am not. No, this biblical truth, right? Each one of us is born into sin, Adam's fall. Taints us all. We all have sin natures. Let any kiddo grow up just a little bit. What about you? If you've had any kids, are they like natural sharers? Please, please, little sister, take all my resources. They are yours. I, I, I benevolently give you all that I am. What else can I do for you? Yeah. 
Oh, my parents, you've been so kind to me. From the first day I was born, I love to obey you. Whatever you say, I will follow your lead because I know you are trustworthy. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, the Bible's clear, right? They have sin natures. Just wait. You'll see it. Jesus is not giving them the kingdom because they're innocent. That's not it. So what is it? It's their need. It's their helplessness. It's the fact that they have nothing in that sense to offer. You see, there's one thing even the smallest child seems to know, even from the the moment they're born. They know they need. I remember walking, you know, I won't mention which child. I remember walking a child around the living room all night long, right? Can anybody relate to this? And you're just amazed. You're like, there is no Olympic athlete who can scream as loud and as long as you can. How do you do this? How do you do this? The greatest martial arts instructor would not have the endurance you have to continue to yell. What are they saying? I need. I need. I don't even know what I need. I just feel like I need. I need. And you're trying to figure out what on earth it is. Sleep, more food, you have to burp. I don't know. I need. That's what they know. They know they need. And they're not shy about it. And they expect you. They need you to meet that need. And here's something about the real and true God. He loves to give grace to the needy. Loves. He gives grace to the needy. It gives him glory as the generous one, the all-sufficient one. It humbles our pride thinking we're self-sufficient before him, thinking we have a contribution to make that he needs. No, it humbles our pride, but then if he's loving enough to humble us, it satisfies us because we find in him all that we need. So this is shocking grace. Some of you may disagree with what I say next, and that's okay. Um, I do think this passage strongly implies that young children who, for instance, die as young children will, by God's grace, be in heaven. I think that the nature of the metaphor makes no sense if you undo the foundation of the metaphor. He has said, these have my kingdom. And as we're going to see in a second, he blesses them. But, but here's the main point, I think, of application for all of us who are listening. Hear what Jesus is saying. I graciously give my kingdom to the absolutely helpless, those who are in need. And the grace continues as Jesus blesses them. He blesses them. He holds them. He lays their hands on them and bless them. So when do we get blessed in our world? I was thinking about this. One time I had allergies on a plane, and I kept sneezing. And somebody over here is like, bless you. Thanks. I sneeze again. Bless you. I really appreciate that. Sneeze again. Bless you. Thank you. Yeah. Sneeze again. Bless you. Okay. I'm feeling blessed, right? I really am. Thanks. What is is that kind of a blessing? It's polite. That's nice of you. It's polite. Does it do anything? Come on. No, and at some point it's like, this is just superstitious. Stop saying that. You have an allergy pill, you know? Is that the way Jesus blesses people? Is that what a blessing from Jesus would be like? Oh, that was really sweet, but it doesn't really... No. No, you guys, 
When Jesus blesses one meal in Mark, the same word, it feeds thousands of people. Look at Matthew 5, 3. Blessed are who? The poor in spirit. What does that mean? That means I know that before Jesus, I have nothing. I'm poor. Blessed are the poor in spirit. And what does he give those who know they're poor, who come to him as poor? What does he give them? The kingdom of heaven. So you imagine Jesus holding these kids and giving them a blessing. I bet it was something like the priestly blessing in number six. Love these verses. We know them. Let's, let's see them. The Lord bless you, number 624, and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you, be gracious to you. The Lord lift his countenance upon you and give you his peace. And when Jesus blessed them, I'm just going to say, they were blessed. They were blessed. What did they do to deserve that blessing? Nothing. That's the point. What did their parents do to deserve that blessing? Nothing. That's the point. Dangerous attitude, shocking grace. Here's the essential response. Please don't leave without taking this seriously. Verse 15. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. So if you're taking Jesus seriously at all, you've got to be thinking, dear Jesus, show me what it means to receive the kingdom like a child. I must know. I've got to do this. I've got to understand this. I've got to live in this. So I'll ask you this question. What do you bring to your salvation? What do you bring? Kind of an illus- a silly illustration, but if, if you died tonight and you stood before the pearly gates, I don't really think that's how it works, but let's pretend. And somebody said, why should we let you in? Here's the part where it's not pretend. What would your heart say? What do you bring? And here's what I know is common out there. Number one, I don't really need to be saved. I can do it. And it's not like a child, is it? How about this one? I might need advice sometimes, but not a savior. What do you think of Jesus? Oh, he's a good teacher. He had some really good talks. I appreciate that. I kind of take what I like, leave what I don't. (laughs) It's not like a child. You're not entering the kingdom. How about this one? I'm a good person. See, I know what you're doing right now because I'm guilty of this. That's why I know. I've committed all the same problems. You're thinking of like some of the worst people you know and how you're better than the worst people. Well done, okay? We're, we're happy that you are not the worst people that you have ever met. That's kind of a low standard. It's not the standard God will use. It's his law. Love him with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength according to your word. Love your neighbor as yourself all the time, every time, according to his word. What do you bring to your salvation? To illustrate this, as we, as we, to, to illustrate this I'm going to go to the Gospel of Luke for a little bit. Because Luke, tie, Luke tells the same story about Jesus with the infants, and he ties this parable to it. I think it's a great illustration of trying to understand what we're supposed to grasp here. So Luke 18, 9. He told this parable to some who what? Trusted in what? 
themselves that they were righteous. I'm good. And treated others with contempt. There's an essential link there. When you think you've obeyed whatever standard it is better than someone else, what does your attitude tend to do? Uh, those people? Come on, aren't you self-righteous towards someone? A little bit. Be honest. It's easy, because you feel like you did it and they didn't. So this guy thinks he's righteous right before God. Verse 10. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one the Pharisee, the other a tax collector. Who's a Pharisee? The Pharisee is the ultimate cultural example of someone who is righteous. He's, he wants to renew the nation through religious purity. He's intense about memorizing the Bible, keeping the rules. He does moral stuff. He goes to church. Who's the other person? The tax collector. That is the ultimate cultural example of someone who is not righteous. They have sold out their own community to the pagan, tyrannical Roman Empire for the sake of money. They've rejected their people, their religion, their morals. They're surrounded by the really bad people. They, they hurt, use, and betray others. They're, they're bad people. You got the, the good person, the bad person coming to pray this day in the temple. Look what happens next. We get to see the Pharisee pray. Look at verse 11. The Pharisee, standing by himself, he's kind of come over to the special part. He prayed thus, God, I thank you. So first of all, does this man believe in God? You guys, believing in God is not enough. He believes in God. God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. Are you impressed? He's more religious than I am. But did you notice? What's the nature of his posture? Did you see how he's basing himself on other people instantly? Basing himself on other people. I'm better than those people. And he trusts in his own goodness, what he brings. Now look at the prayer of the tax collector, verse 13. The tax collector, something's going on in this guy's life, standing far off, would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Who's there in his prayer? See, in the Pharisee's prayer, there's all these other people he's better than. Who's in the tax collector's prayer? This God and the tax collector. And as he faces the reality of a holy God, do you see any pride? Do you see any pompousness? He won't even look up. He knows he's in trouble on his own. He knows he has no excuses. He's got one hope. And what was it? God, be merciful to me, a sinner. What does he know about himself? I'm a sinner. I've denied you. I rebelled against you. I broke the law over and over and over again. I have no excuse. I have no excuse. I'm a sinner. What do I do? I deserve your wrath. What do I do? God, what does he say? Be merciful to me. Show me kindness I don't deserve. 
is the story Jesus is telling. Look at the conclusion, verse 14. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. You guys, that is scandalous for Jesus to say. One of the two people praying was counted right before God, forgiven, made righteous. And who was it not? It was not the religious, good person, Pharisee, who trusted in his own goodness. He was not justified. He was not forgiven. He did not inherit the kingdom of God. We're used to hearing you have to repent of your sin. There's a flip side to this. You need to repent of your goodness. Here's what I mean. Are we supposed to do good deeds as Christians? Of course we are. Of course. But, uh, but the, the, the poison of trying to prove to God that he owes us his love and salvation because we were good enough. Jesus is telling us all, repent of your goodness. Repent of your trust in yourself, that you're good enough, sufficient enough, wise enough, kind enough, better than those people. And it is so important that you humble yourself in this way that if you don't, you won't enter the kingdom of God. So it's so confronting. The Pharisee in this parable was not justified. But here's what comforts us. Guess who was justified? The tax collector. That boy just converted. You can read in Luke and see the real thing. It happens to Zacchaeus. He's converted. So here's the great news, okay? So here's where, if I'm going to do my job faithfully, I got to elbow those of you who think you're good on your own. When you stand before Jesus, you'll remember, I went to this little church once, and this guy told me, I'm telling you, that will not save you. By God's standard, you're not good on your own. But here's the glorious good news, because if you know you're not good enough on your own, if you know you can't save yourself, if you know you've messed it up, if you know you have no hope, if you know that all you bring to your salvation is your sin and your need, I got good news for you. Because when you trust yourself to Jesus Christ, he will justify you. He will save you. He will count his perfect life in place of yours. So when the Father looks at you, he looks at your life, he sees Jesus and goes, perfect. He will count his death on a cross as substituting for you. So when the Father sees all the wrath you deserve for your sin, and he wants to pour out justice, he will see Jesus took this in your place, which means you're completely and totally forgiven of all your sin. And you will have Jesus' resurrection as yours through faith in him. You are a child of God. You are brought near. Jesus has given you his kingdom. What did you have to offer to get his kingdom? Just like that infant, nothing. But what does he love to do for the needy? He loves to be gracious. He loves to be gracious. Isn't that beautiful? If you know your need, look to Jesus. He's got all you need. If you know your need, look to Jesus. He's got all you need. I'm going to do two applications here real quick. One is very practical. 
I think we need to remember as a local church that caring for children is not secondhand work. It's not for just those who really couldn't do anything else. It deserves our best. Our best leaders, our best efforts. We think of the mothers of our community, the committed fathers, even volunteers caring for our young children now, right? Our culture communicates that caring for young children, that's like the eye roll work. If only you had a real life, like a career or success or pleasure, these need monsters get in the way of what it really means to live the good life. That makes Jesus angry. It's not a waste of time to devote ourselves as appropriate, as needed, to the care of children. I want to read you a section from Psalm 78.4. Look at this. We will not hide them from our children, but tell to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might, all the wonders he's done. He established a testimony in Jacob, appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers to teach their children that the next generation might know them, a children yet unborn, and arise and tell them to their children so they should hope in God. That's what we want to do. That's the first application, real practical. Value king, the children's place in the kingdom. Second application, and we'll close with this. You know, there was one other meal Jesus blessed in Mark. And it's the meal we are about to take next. Mark 14, 22. He's celebrating the Passover with his people, right? Where God rescued them out of slavery. And the heartbeat of that rescue was when the angel of judgment is coming. You kill the lamb. You put the blood over your door. And if you have that blood, the judgment passes over. You're forgiven. You're safe. As Jesus is eating the meal to celebrate this, He's telling us all it's fulfilled in him. Look what he says, Mark 14, 22. As they were eating, he took bread, and after blessing it, he broke it and gave it to them and said, take, this is my, what? Body. We're going to take the Lord's Supper together after we take up our offering. And this meal is not for infants. The Bible tells us there needs to be personal faith. But it is, though, it is for those who come like infants. Because if you have put your faith in Jesus, if your heart says, I need you, I'm a sinner, I'm lost without you, I trust you, I want to live for you. If you've been baptized, professed your faith in Christ, you're welcome to come to this meal. Come knowing your need and feasting on Jesus' sufficiency. He lived for you. He died for you. He rose for you. He belongs to you. His death in our place, it feeds us, doesn't it? And that's how this Lord's Supper is, how we remember that, how we taste that, how we ingest the reality that his sufficiency meets our need. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, uh, who can hear you speak and not be confronted? So, Lord, we confess all the times we have played like we're righteous, played like we can save ourselves, all the times we've been self-righteous towards others, 
uh, forgive us, Lord. We confess it. We're sinners. And I pray your Holy Spirit would move in the hearts of each one of us to say, have mercy on me, a sinner. And that your Holy Spirit would show us the sufficiency of Christ, the great king, the ultimate king, so strong, so kind, lived a perfect life for us. We can be righteous in him, died on the cross in our place. We can be forgiven in him, rose from the dead. We can be children of God. We are children of God through faith in him. Lord, feed us, feed our needy hearts on your goodness, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.